What if there was a way to understand how your body stores fat and how to efficiently burn off that fat? Well, in today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we have Dr. Sylvia Terra to break it all down. Let's do this. know that you're going to come off your diet it happens to everybody and in fact you know willpower is like a muscle if you use it all the time it gets tired so in some ways you have to come off once in a while just to keep yourself going the trick is to get right back on be forgiving of yourself it's okay right don't let perfect get in the way of what's possible I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, host of the Keto Camp Podcast. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. I am super excited to introduce Dr. Sylvia Terra. She has an amazing new book called The Secret Life of Fat, the science behind the body's least understood organ and what it means for you. I just totally geeked out with her on this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, and you're gonna love her. You're gonna understand what exactly fat is you're gonna see that it's an endocrine organ and it has multiple functions. We'll talk about why calorie counting is a failing formula, creating adiponectin, which is huge, and the role leptin plays with your brain, your bones, and multiple organs. And we really dive deep into leptin, by the way. Leptin is the hormone that tells you you're full, stop eating. We'll talk about that. And then we get into the role of adiponectin, and some strategies to activate adiponectin. Why we wanna do that, by the way, is because adiponectin helps take fat and push it to your subcutaneous fat, which is much healthier for you, versus storing it in your visceral fat, your organs, which could lead to metabolic damage and disease. We talk about the role exercise plays with adiponectin, and get this, why women actually produce more leptin after exercise than men. We talk about brown adipose tissue, which is brown fat. We talk about beige fat and white fat. What's the difference and why we want more brown fat. We talk about how women can lose belly fat and why it's different for women to lose weight. The role of intermittent fasting for fat loss and why Dr. Sylvia Terra loves fasting as a strategy. And we talk about insulin, the role of genetics in fat storage, how environmental factors affect fat like pesticides, plastics, preservatives, parabens, heavy metals how to test your body fat, correlation between stress, cortisol, and fat. This is a masterclass on fat. So make sure you're present, you grab a piece of paper, you're gonna wanna take a lot of notes today. Before I bring it on, I wanna take a second here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This one comes from a friend of mine who actually just interviewed me for her YouTube channel, Jane Hogan. Jane Hogan Health left a five-star review titled, So Thorough and Backed by Research. Packed with great information and resources, Ben Azadi knows his stuff, and I love his mission. Fantastic podcast. Jane, I appreciate you so much. It was such a pleasure being on your show. You can go check her out on YouTube. Type in Jane Hogan Health. She interviewed me. We had a great conversation on mindset and health and keto and fasting. So thank you for leaving that rating and review. If you have not left the show a rating and review yet on Apple Podcast, I encourage you to do so right now. And as a thank you, I want you to receive my Keto Flex Cookbook, which has 21 fat-burning recipes on keto for breakfast, lunch, dinner. You can get that for free. Just take a screenshot of your review, submit that to support at ketocamp.com, and voila, we'll reply with a PDF download of that cookbook. Without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Sylvia Terra. Dr. Sylvia Terra is a biochemist who understands 
there was more to weight loss than calories and dedicated her research on fat's mysteries and the reasons it vexes us. In her best-selling book, The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ and What It Means for You, she reveals the complex biology of fat, how it resists loss, and what to do to remove stubborn fat. She holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego and an MBA from the Warden School of the University of Pennsylvania. Her research results and approach quickly piqued the interest of doctors and scientists worldwide, skyrocketing the book onto the bestseller list and serving as the focus of an episode on Nova on PBS called The Truth About Fat, which aired in April 2020. Dr. Sylvia Terra, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to meet you. I'm a big fan of your work. You have an amazing book that you wrote, The Secret Life of Body Fat, <laughs> that we'll talk about soon. And I loved just what you have in that book. So congratulations on an amazing book. I'm so glad the world has that book as a resource. Uh, I would love to start with your story. You know, Why did you become obsessed, if you will, with understanding how the body, the metabolism works and how we store fat? What is your story? How did you get involved with this? Yeah, so I gain weight really easily, and I have my whole life. I've watched people eat whatever they felt like, drink whatever they want, and they didn't gain weight. Or if they went on a diet, they would lose weight with within a few weeks, and I'd still be struggling. And I went on one diet after another, tried a number of different diets. And I remember I was just getting ready to start another one that was a very complicated diet. And I thought, why am I doing this? I need to understand fat once and for all. So I'm a biochemist by training, I'm a scientist. And I thought, well, if anyone can understand fat, I surely can, I have the training. And so I went on a big expedition to really understand my fat. Why did I gain fat easier than other people? Why was it harder for me to lose it when I, when I compared myself to others? And for five years, I studied all of the scientific literature. I think I pulled out over a thousand articles and read them. I spoke to over 50 scientists across the world on their research on fat, right? What was it about fat that differed so much between people? And what I found out was so astounding. It was so surprising that I thought I have to write a book about this. I have to tell people what I'm finding out about fat. And so the secret life of fat is that is that research. It's everything I found out. And, um, you know, it's, it's an amazing... Thing fat. We think of it as storage for calories, and it's so much more than that. It's actually a very act, it's a very active endocrine organ, right? So it's in there. It's emitting hormones that your body is depending on. So when you try to lose your fat, your body actually tries to protect it. It doesn't want to lose fat as much as it wants to lose a thyroid gland, right? It doesn't want to lose this organ. It sees it as an organ. So the book is all about those interesting details and why some people gain weight easier, why some people have more difficulty losing, and finally what you can do about it to remove stubborn fat if that's what you have. Mm, yeah, and it's a fantastic book. So elevator pitch. Let's say you're on an elevator and somebody asked you in less than 30 seconds, what is fat? What would be your definition of it? It is a complex endocrine organ that has multiple functions. One is storing calories. Another one is producing leptin that has great effect on our brains and our bones and multiple organs. Another one is secreting adiponectin that has a lot of effect on where our fat is stored. Um, how do I end this nicely? It's a complicated <laughs> organ, you know, by a small piece, it's just a piece of tissue, kind of like a square of skin, it's just a piece of skin. But when we think of our skin in its totality, it's an organ. Fat is very much the same way. Yeah, well said. I put you on, on the spot there, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's important to understand that fat is an organ. And it's anti-survival. The number one priority for the body is survival. And when you go against it, the body fights back. So you mentioned two hormones there. You mentioned leptin and adiponectin. Now, leptin is the hormone that tells you put the fork down. Ghrelin is the hormone that tells you pick up the fork. So explain more about leptin. And then uh, also let's get into adiponectin as well. Yeah, that sounds good. So I think that's one of the biggest takeaways of the book is about leptin. So our fat produces this hormone called leptin. It's the biggest producer of leptin in the body. And fat releases it into the bloodstream. And once it goes to the bloodstream, it goes to your brain. And once it's in your brain, it'll tell your brain that we're overall satisfied. Things are good. There's enough nutrition in the world. I feel okay, right? That's what your fat is telling your brain. Um, it also communicates with your muscles. Right? And when it tells your muscles, it's okay to expend energy because we have enough fat, so all is good in the world, there, there's nutrition out there. When we start to lose fat, when we start to lose weight, say 10% or more, 
we reduce the amount of leptin we have because fat produces leptin. When we lose some weight, we, we lose some of that leptin. Your body responds dramatically to that differential in leptin level. So your brain now has a, a slower leptin signal and it starts to go into overdrive. People who've lost 10% or more of their body weight, they respond enormously to food. They've done fMRI images on their brains. When they look at food, it lights up wildly, all the excitatory centers. And also what's interesting is their inhibitory centers are diminished in activity, meaning they're much more excited by food and less able to control themselves around it, right? Mm. Really biochemically, it's very interesting. Also, your muscles revert to a different form of myosin that actually conserves energy. So your resting metabolism can go down 22% because your body's trying to conserve energy. It thinks its fat is melting away. It doesn't want it to melt away. So it's trying to save it. And when you exercise, you reduce your calorie burn by about 25%. Right? And this effect, even when you're done your diet, right? This effect can last for a long time. It doesn't just end when you end a diet and you stop losing weight. It's been studied for up to six years and it might last forever in some people who are not wow. quite sure yet. And so what it means is once you've lost weight, you have to eat less than someone who's at that norm at that weight normally. So someone who's 170 pounds and lost 20 pounds to get to 150, they will have to eat 22% fewer calories than somebody who is at 150 pounds naturally without losing weight to get there. And they might have to do that for several years. And so that's a really big kind of outcome of that research. And a lot of people saw that as very depressing. I actually saw that as empowering because that's the state I was in and I couldn't understand why. And the dieting business is really big. Everyone's trying to sell you their diet. And they always, you know, they'll make it seem like, well, you're just not dieting, right? Come try my diet. And then when you fail on that diet, they'll say, well, you must have done something wrong, right? This diet works for this many people. But really, you have to understand your own body first. And once you understand it, you can now start to know what to do. So I knew now that I, I could not be on the normal amount of calories that, that people were saying I should be. I had to reduce it much more. I had to exercise more before I could really lose any weight. And so knowledge is power. And I think knowing that it shouldn't be you know, discouraging to anybody. It, it just tells you that you might have to up the ante more if you have this really stubborn fat. You just explained so well why the weight loss industry, the diet industry just fails miserably. It might work short term, but as you just showed the science, the body fights back and it fights back strong. And then all of a sudden you get leptin cravings because leptin is decreased and you get the you get your muscles storing energy instead of burning energy and all these things happen inside the body that we don't want and it makes us feel miserable and we're blaming ourselves but you just said it's so empowering because it's not our fault it's just the body's way of working so i love that because it does empower the person now what role does the hormone adiponectin play with this process this is so interesting. So adiponectin is more or less telling fat where to go. So when we eat fat, right, we have dietary fats, adiponectin will guide the fat in our bloodstream to the right parts of our body. So there's different kinds of fat, right? There's, there's white fat, that's subcutaneous fat. It's right under the skin. It's in your thighs, your buttocks, your arms, right? And, and it's actually the safe place to deposit fat. If you're going to have some fat, that's the place to put it. There's also visceral fat, which I'm sure your audience is well aware of, that fat underneath the stomach wall, the more dangerous fat that's nestled against the pancreas, internal organ. That's the fat that gets really inflamed when we get too much of it there. You know, there's brown fat too, the fat that burns mm -hmm. calories instead of storing calories. Um, and there's also beige fat, that beige, that, that, that fat that can turn brown when we exercise. So adiponectins help guiding your fat that you eat and putting it into the right place and moving it around really. And so the more exercise you do, exercise releases adiponectin. And so I write about sumo wrestlers in the book. Now, sumo wrestlers are obviously really obese. Uh, and even all that belly fat, you know, what, what we've learned about them from CT scans is that it's mostly subcutaneous fat. It's right underneath their skin. It's not underneath the stomach wall. And one reason they can do that, even though they eat 6,000 calories a day, is that they also exercise for six to seven hours a day. They exercise a lot and they have higher levels of adiponectin. And that's actually keeping fat into the healthier deposits of fat. So the legs underneath the skin, right, the arms. And they're not metabolically unhealthy. They don't have high diabetes or high heart disease. They actually manage to be fat but fit. Now, when sumo wrestlers come off their exercise regime, when they retire, they get metabolically unhealthy very quickly because they're not exercising to the same level. 
So I'm not promoting obesity. I'm not promoting being super looking like a sumo wrestler. It's overall best not to have too much fat. But if you are going to carry some extra pounds, we know what's best next is to make sure it's going to the right place and it's not ending up in your visceral area. So that's the rule that exercise could could help. So adiponectin to me, it's kind of like a Sherpa. It's kind of like guiding you to where you want to go and exercise will help you accomplish that. Now, is there a specific exercise that helps you do that? Is it strength training versus cardio or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both, and it's not insignificant. And if you're going to do this level of exercise, you might as well also work on taking off some fat because it's a really big investment. So I think it's around 20 hours of jogging a week is what will get you to adequate levels of adiponectin. Then it starts to shift around where your fat is. Um, three three uh, times a week of HIT as well, high-intensity interval training, will also help raise your levels of adiponectin. So it's not insignificant. You have to exercise a lot before it actually starts to have an effect. So again, I think it's best to, to work with diet you know, and some exercise. Um, don't rely on exercise alone. Being a sumo wrestler is a full-time job, right? They are exercising for six, seven hours a day. Most of us don't have time to do that. So I think a combination of the diet and exercise is what really is going to work best. Yeah, you make a great point there because, yeah, you look at the sumo wrestlers are eating 6,000 calories a day, but they're working out all day long, and that's not sustainable. Like you said, once they stop working out that much, they turn really unhealthy. They get metabolic syndrome, metabolic damage. So it's a combination of eating the right foods, eating at the right time, which we'll get into fasting, and then also uh, consistent exercise. Now, you mentioned the word brown fat, beige fat, white fat. I love talking about this this topic because it's so fascinating and new research keeps coming out. So explain a little bit more about that. You explain the white fat. It's around our organs. It's visceral fat. That leads to um, inflammation. It leads to disease. But talk about this beige fat and how it could actually turn brown and why we want more brown fat. Yeah, so I mean, brown fat is actually, you know, it's used to create heat. It's very interesting. So babies have a higher proportion of brown fat compared to white fat, you know, compared to adults. Which is why they don't, they don't shiver, right? That's the reason why they don't shiver. Right, right. And we have it. We have it around our heart. We have it around the clavicle areas and our spine. We have it in those important areas that need to be protected and need to be heated, even when we don't, we have exposure to cold. So it's very interesting. And then there's a beige fat, which is discovered uh, in the last decade, and that's fat that can actually turn brown and exercise actually turns beige fat brown. So the more you exercise, you can increase your levels of brown fat. So exercise is good for so many things. I mean, obviously it burns calories when you do it. It builds up bone, it builds up muscle, which also metabolize calories faster too. But then it also builds up brown fat and it releases adiponectin. It's like this, this big winner of a thing to do. And so, yeah, so yes, you, you can increase your brown fat Another thing besides exercise that will increase brown fat is actually exposure to cold. And so taking a cold swim actually works, right? They've seen that it works in people. And I always tell the story about my husband because when I wrote this book, I, I told him about this. And he's a skinny guy anyway, but he started uh, swimming in our cold pool, a very cold pool. And he started eating like a horse. I mean, he had to eat almost like double what he was already eating, <laughs> you know, for that. So it worked very well, you know, for him at least. And so I think it, it actually can be effective. Um, you know, diet, again, I'll go back. I think diet's our number one tool here to keep our weight down, but there's all kinds of interesting things to know about, um, you know, as far as exercise and other things you can do as well. Yeah, and what all these benefits have in common, cold exposure, exercise, intermittent fasting, which we'll get into, they all create this process called hormesis, right? It's a good stress. And when you when you force the body and the cells and the mitochondria to adapt, good cells get stronger, bad cells don't adapt. So the body and the metabolism becomes more efficient. And that's really how the body was designed to function for so many years. Uh, the environment always forced hormesis to our ancestors, and now we have to intentionally include it into our day-to-day. Your book is so fascinating, first of all. I recommend all of those listening to the Keto Camp podcast or watching it here on YouTube. I'm holding it up to go get the book. We're going to put the links to download it or to, to purchase it in the notes of the podcast and in the YouTube video. And you have so much great research in there. Something that I learned from you in the book is when it comes to the hormone ghrelin, right? That hunger hormone, that, that, that hunger pangs that come out, that women produce 33% more ghrelin than men after exercise. Tell us more about that. It's crazy. 
Uh, women are designed to just have more fat, I learned from doing this research. So girl babies, even when they're born, they have more fat than boy babies. Like mm. They're more or less designed for that. So as, as we start to give a signal that we're losing fat as women, nature really wants to put it back on. And, and there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, you know, fat produces estrogen. Fat is linked to our reproducibility, all kinds, all kinds of reasons for having that. So when women exercise, they have a different reaction than men. Our, our bodies produce ghrelin after exercise. Exercise, and it's a hormone that's released from your stomach. Um, again, it binds with your brain. It gives us a hunger signal. And so if you do a really good bout of exercise where you've, you've burned off, say, five, 600 calories or so, women actually, it's been shown in this research, they produce 33% more ghrelin than men. And when they like, let them go to the buffet afterward, they'll load up their plate. They'll really overcompensate compared to a guy. So they have to watch it. There's all kinds of dieting tips for women versus men because women are different. I mean, women even partition nutrients into fat almost automatically, right, more so than men do. So they're just designed to have a little bit more fat. And a lot of uh, training, you know, a lot of trainers, they're, they're guys, right? So they'll, they'll train you and they'll train you like a guy. And I think if for, for personal trainers out there, one thing that, to know is that, you know, women, of course, are going to have a much longer trajectory. It's going to take them a longer time. Some of the tricks that you use on men, the results you're using to see on a man won't be there for a woman. A woman really has different different factors they have to compensate for. Um, and there's tricks you can do. So really for women, you know, I, I've recommended putting exercise in slowly, right? First, get your diet under control. Go for a walk, do a little exercise. If you start to have a really big hunger reaction, ratchet it down, actually. Right? Limit your exercise a little bit. Get your habits for solidly under control and ramp up slowly. And then for that ghrelin response, too, after you've exercised, you really have to try not to overcompensate. So eat a little bit and go distract yourself. Go do something fun. Eat high fiber. Fiber is great because it stretches those stretch receptors in your stomach as well, and you start to feel full. So just be careful what you surround yourself with. I think mm -hmm. emotionally, we feel like we want to eat after we exercise. Problem is we're hungrier than a guy is, and we tend to overcompensate afterward. Yeah, it's so important to understand that. So probably the worst thing to do after you exercise for the ladies is to go to the grocery store because you're probably going to add some cookies and some things in there that you don't want because you have that ghrelin just perking up. I would also add to the fiber tip to add protein as well. We know protein helps activate these uh, satiety hormones, leptin, cholecystokinin, peptide YY. And you're so right. I've taken thousands and thousands of people through a ketogenic approach. But the way that I teach keto, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I love ketosis. I think it's fantastic. I don't think it's great long term. I teach keto flexing, but I also have an entire chapter talking about how to do it for women. If you're a cycling woman, when's the best time to do keto and fasting? If you're postmenopausal, the adrenals we know take over for a lot of the hormones, the ovaries we're doing. So you got to really take care of your stress. So it's really important to understand this because most of the people teaching keto I've seen, they're teaching the wrong way. They're applying one tool to so many different scenarios. And by the way, you don't know this, but in my book, it's called Keto Flex. It's coming out in about a month. I actually gave you a little shout out because as I was doing research for this episode, I included some information in my book and I and I gave your book and yourself a shout out in the book. So I wanted to let you know about that. Thank you. Um, so speaking of women, like what are some other things, you know, when it comes to women that we should consider versus men? What are some special things that they can do, special considerations they can do versus men when it comes to losing body fat? Yeah, I mean, one thing is you have to be really patient. So I, I just put out a new course now to based on my book because I felt like people needed a little bit more how-to. Great yeah. idea. Yeah, thank you. You have to understand where you are on the spectrum of fat, right? And everyone has an individual fat blueprint, if you will, mm. right? Depends on, on what, there's so many components to it. And in, in the book, I write about the genetics, the genetic component to fat, the microbiome, viruses, right? Gender we talked about, but there's also hormones is a big part of this too. And how much you yo-yo dieted, because we talked about that effective leptin, that caloric penalty you get, right? Once you lose some leptin where you're, you're hungry and you need fewer calories. So... Like a 22-year-old man, right, who's gained 15 pounds and now needs to lose it and hasn't really been heavy before is going to have a much easier time losing that fat compared to a 55-year-old woman who's had a couple kids and has yo-yo dieted and now has 55 pounds to lose. That guy is going to take that off, I'm guessing, in about three weeks. And probably all they have to do is cut out carbs and exercise a little bit, right? That True. woman, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no. That woman is going to be on that diet for a year. They're going to have to watch their calories. They're going to have to watch their eating window. And they're going to have to watch you know, their, their carbs, what they're doing. And they're going to have to do some intense exercise. And they're going to have to be at that for a year. 
right? So they're both probably in the gym together and she's watching this guy being really frustrated. There's a lot of psychological coaching that has to go with this too. Um, you have to understand your fat and you have to be really forgiving of yourself. I also have a whole chapter on mind over fat. So the kind of mental fortitude you need, what to prepare yourself for. Another issue with women is that they have something called dichotomous thinking. Dichotomous thinking is when, you know, if I didn't get an A in a class, I got B, I failed, right? So it's that slippery slope thinking where if I didn't get perfect, I failed at this. And it's so much more prevalent in women than it is men. And, you know, I talked to a lot of medical coaches out there um, at Tufts and, uh, and Jocelyn Center who, who coach women. And, you know, they've said that women have a hard time. If they make a mistake on a diet, they just go off the rails and they'll just start eating and binging. Whereas guys will be like, yeah, I had a beer, you know, I'm, I'm here again, I'm back, right? They, they just, there's a different psychological component. Why do you think that is? You know, what, what do you think that the reason is for that? That's a good question. I don't know if it's biochemical or if it's social or it's just emotional. I'm not sure. Uh, women seem to hold themselves to a really high standard. And when they don't get it, they have a higher tendency to feel like a failure. So there has to be self-forgiveness. Know that you're going to come off your diet. It happens to everybody. And in fact, you know, willpower is like a muscle. If you use it all the time, it gets tired. So in some ways, you have to come off once in a while just to keep yourself going. The trick is to get right back on. Be forgiving of yourself. It's okay, right? Don't let perfect get in the way of what's possible. Mm. What is possible, even if it's not the 55 pounds for that woman that I've given an example for, maybe it's 45, you're still a lot healthier for losing that 45 pounds. Don't look for perfect. I know there's images of glistening six-packs abs all everywhere. We see them everywhere. You don't really have to have that to be healthy, and it's about being healthy and happy. So there's lots of tips for women, and there are lots of tips just for you know individualizing your diet depending on what's going on with you. And there's a little bit of a, a diagnosis, a self-assessment I have in the course about how to figure out what kind of fat you have. Is it really stubborn? Is it going to be easy? And then how do you up the ante if you have this really stubborn fat? Mm. So where, where can my audience learn more about your course? Yeah, it's online. So um, it's at www.thesecretlifeoffat.com. That's where I talk about the book. There's some blogs on there too. And the course is there too. And so, yeah, I mean, it's good. And I, I tried to just put in more how-to because I think the book was very scientific. It was full of scientific facts and, and maybe not enough about how do you really now implement that. So I tried to put that more into the course. Awesome. I think it's a brilliant idea. I, I love what you said about, you know, stop trying to be perfect. One of the things that I always say here at Keto Camp is we don't want to compete against anybody else. We just want to compete against what we did yesterday. Do better actions today. It's these small little tweaks that lead to giant peaks. And when you do fall off track, it's all part of the learning process. And it's not about the setback. It is about the get back. So it's a, perfectly aligned with what you shared so I love that. Kudos to you. Mind over fat. Absolutely. What about intermittent fasting? I know you have some information in your book about that, but let's talk about the role of how to use intermittent fasting for fat loss for both men and women. Yeah, that's really good. And so another thing I put in the course is there's this concept of food latitude. So there's a whole bunch of diets out there that can work for people. And, and really a diet has to work for you um, socially, psychologically, and biologically. So it has to work socially for your lifestyle. You can be on this. If you're entertaining people for dinner all the time, you know, that nighttime fast probably won't work for you. Pick a different diet. Psychologically, if you feel like hey, there's a certain food you need or religiously there's a food you can or can't have, right, it's got to work for your psychology. And then finally, biologically, you're actually losing weight on the diet. So intermittent fasting, I've actually grown to really like. It's what I use to get weight off. And I like it for so many reasons. I mean, first, let's talk about it biochemically. You know, when you fast, especially when you fast overnight, when you extend that overnight fasting period, our growth hormone peaks at night. And eating actually mitigates the levels of growth hormone, right? And growth hormone is a great fat burner. So the more we have it in our bloodstream, the more it's active and it can be effective, it'll burn through fat, which is terrific. So if you don't eat too much, you know, near that peak, you're really elongating that those levels of growth hormone in your blood, which is a very good fat burner. And we need that as we get older because we've produced less of it with age. So you want to definitely prolong that, that uh, interval at night. But also, you know, glucagon gets released, so you're, you're burning fat that way too. And then in that overnight sleep, if you sleep adequately, you're increasing your levels of leptin, which means you're going to be a little bit more satiated the next day. Fasting, intermittent fasting like that is also associated with more willpower. For whatever reason, people feel more in control when they're doing intermittent fasting and they can control what they do in their day. So that's biochemically why I think intermittent fasting is so great. The other reason, though, is that you have more food latitude, right? So this is getting back to what works for you psychologically. 
I don't like diets with the hundred rules. I'm just not that obedient of a person. So if there's like 50 foods I can't eat, I have to prepare foods in a certain way. I will be on that diet for maybe two days. I, I just not good for me. There's lots of people who can do it and kudos to them. With intermittent fasting, what I find is I can eat a lot of almost anything during the day, during my eating window. As long as I fast at night, I don't seem to pack anything on, which is great for me because I'm going to say something that will make me sound like a heretic. I'm going to say it anyway. I like a little bit of sugar here and there, right? Like I like a gummy bear or two, piece of chocolate. I can do it as long as I'm eating in my window, right? I'm not overdoing it. I never gorge myself on those things, but I can have that during the window. So for me, psychologically, it works because I'm not terribly obedient. You know, biochemically, I can bust through fat as well. And, I, and I'm not entertaining at night all the time, so it works for my life. And so for all those reasons, I think it's a really good option, especially if you have very stubborn fat. Yeah, I love intermittent fasting. It's one of my favorite tools. What What is your go-to intermittent fasting schedule that you do on a regular basis? Yeah, so I try not to eat anything after four. But really, if, I'm, if I really need to lose weight, I stop at three and I don't eat till nine o'clock the next day. So it's a pretty long window. Um, when I need to lose weight. If I'm just, you know, trying to stay steady, I can go until four or so. But I know if I eat from five onward, it packs right on me. It's a it's a magical thing. And this will be my next thing I research one day. What is it about five o'clock? That seems to put it right into your, your fat tissue. <laughs> but I know there's other people like my husband once in a while will do the every other day fasting. I know some people really like that method. You know, there's other people who do the three and two. So there's there's lots of options for fasting. I think you got to find one again that works for you and your lifestyle. I know when I'm working, I have a hard time being hungry while I work. I get distracted. So I like my nighttime fasting because I can have a little, some lunch and I usually have a salad for lunch and then you know, a couple of snacks and I stop. And then at night, then I can just relax. I can watch something or distract myself somehow. So that's what works for me. Again, it's all about individualizing a diet that works for you. Absolutely. Yeah. For me too. I'm most productive. I feel good in the fasted state. I have these, uh, these counter-regulatory hormones that are now activated. Hey, I want to take a brief minute to share something with you. For many years, I used to take fish oil and recommend it. And I see a lot of people in the keto space overdoing it with fish oil. There are several reasons why I am not a fan of fish oil and why I stopped recommending it to all of my clients several years ago. Number one, 83% of fish oil is expected to be rancid on the shelf before you even consume it. There was also an experiment done. This study was called the Iowa Screening Experiment. This study showed it took 18 weeks to reverse the negative effect of the incorporation of EPA and DHA from fish oil into the cell membrane. Another study found that fish oil increased the risk of colon cancer in mice. Here's the quote. We found that mice developed deadly late-stage colon cancer when given high doses of fish oil. More importantly, with the increased inflammation, it only took four weeks for the tumors to develop. Simply put, I stopped taking it. I stopped recommending it. I use a plant-based omega from Pureform. This supplement is nitrogen-infused, which preserves and protects it. It has the proper balance of omega-6 to omega-3, and most importantly, it gives you the derivatives, the building blocks, they're called parent essential oils, for you to produce your own EPA and DHA. If you wanna learn more about Pureform, head over to purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4, that is B-E-N, the number four, at checkout, and you'll get $4 off your capsules of Pureform. We will also drop a link for you down below in the podcast notes. All right, let's go back to this episode. We haven't even discussed insulin and the role insulin plays with fat storage because I always say insulin is the bully of the block. When he's around, those fat-burning hormones, they're they're going away. So what's the role of insulin when it comes to uh, fat storage and what are some tactics? I know fasting is one of them. What are some other strategies we can do to really keep insulin at bay? Yeah, I mean, there's fiber brings down insulin. So eating plenty of fibrous foods, leafy greens, that kind of thing will really help. Higher protein diets, lower carbs, obviously not a ton of sugar. Yeah, it's funny, I, I didn't write about insulin too much because I feel like it's already been written about and known about for like so much, right? There's decades of writing on, on insulin, diet books around insulin. The whole Atkins diet was about avoiding insulin spikes. What is interesting is our bodies are very individual. So there's there's research now um, out of Weizmann Institute in Israel, which I, I've really been liking reading about this. Everyone's body responds differently to, to food. So there's people who can eat a muffin or alcohol and their blood sugar does nothing. It just stays very steady. And then there's other people who can eat the same foods and they get a huge spike in their glucose level. 
And so our bodies are reacting differently. And so it's like, you'll see this in your day-to-day life. Some people get away with eating sweets. Nothing bad happens to them. Other people have, you know, just a bite of a cookie and it's the end. I'm, I'm on the ladder, by the way. So <laughs> not just about this works. And so you just, again, depending on your, you are, you'll have to manage your insulin, right? And I think fasting helps, you know, manage insulin. It helps with insulin sensitivity, helps with willpower as well. And eating fibrous foods actually brings it down too. So a lot of things you can do there. And um, yeah, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. And I, I write about this very carefully in the books. I know it makes me an outcast, but in some ways insulin, it, it also produces satiety, right? So it's something to watch for. Some of those low carb diets, and I've been on them, I'm never stopping wanting to eat. I always want to, even though I might've had a steak, I still, I just feel like I need something, something's missing. And what I've learned in my own, and I, never, I do write about this is, is what I do now is I have a salad, like I have a really leafy greens, you know, salad. I put protein on it, some fat on it and all that. I noticed that I was constantly looking for food after that, even though my belly was full. And I've learned to very strategically use sugar for that. And I'll just have just a couple of gummy bears, not a lot. I'm, I'm very disciplined about it. And I am not hungry for hours, for about five or six hours. I'm not even thinking about food after that. And so insulin has a lot of bad if you overdo it, right? If you have high insulin levels, um, you're having insulin resistance, of course that's bad. You know, it's there for a reason. One is that it's moving those nutrients out of your blood and into fat tissue where it belongs, right? That's important. The other thing is it has a satiety kind of effect to it also. It makes your brain believe that you don't need anything for a while. And so again, everything, you know, in moderation. And I think the diet pendulum seems to swing all over. Like, you know, it'll swing to no sugar, no carbs, nothing. Before that, it was all carbs and no protein and no fats. So it goes all over the place. And right now we're in this low carb era. Sugar is terrible. Don't even look at it. But we're going to come out of this at some point in some decades, right? I I think we'll find something balanced. But in very small amounts, those carbs are not necessarily, you know, they're not going to kill you. Although if you have that slippery slope where it's going to make you go crazy and come off your diet don't do what i just said right right <laughs> stay on your low-carb diet but i have actually learned that it has some some kind of satiety effects that i like and i incorporate yeah well said and, and you're right you know if you're somebody who tends to have like a sugar addiction and you do a little bit of gummy bears then it might lead to a lot of bit of gummy bears so make sure you know yourself and you could always do it with like berries or fruits to get the, the, the natural sugar from there i agree I believe in God and I believe God didn't make mistakes, right? We have insulin in the body and we wouldn't exist today if we didn't have this process because insulin helped us store fat back in the day and it helped us survive times of famish. And now we just call insulin too much. But the opposite is true. Just like you don't want too much brown fat, by, by for example, because you shared a story about a girl, I think, with too much brown fat. We don't want too much insulin or, or even too low insulin because when you have chronically low levels of insulin, aka doing ketosis for too long, then you actually get some dysfunction in the thyroid conversion because insulin actually helps T4 inactive thyroid convert to T3. It also helps, like you said, with satiety. So it's important to balance it out and and make sure you understand your body. That's why I love your message so much because it's not a a dogmatic approach, not just a a blanket statement. It's really understanding how the body works. And then the, the listener or the reader could actually then apply it for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. You have to understand what works for you as well. What can you tolerate? And again, hats off to people who can be off sugar forever, right? And they don't need it. They don't feel a hunger pang. We're all so different. And I don't think we should, you know, villainize or or like, you know, just go after people who are a little bit off the message. I think we do too much of that dogmatic thinking. So individualize your diet. You know, you'll find one that works. And remember, you'll have to be on it for a long time because that caloric penalty I talked about with leptin, it might not go away. So pick a diet you can be on for the long haul that, that you don't mind, right? If you have to eat this way every day forever. Yeah, well said. So what about the role of genetics? What's the role of genetics with fat loss and and fat storage? Oh, yeah, there's so much to that. And so you never have to be obese. I'm just going to say that off the bat. I think genetically how you're composed, it can make it either more difficult or less difficult, right, to manage your fat. You just have to work harder if you're, you know, at a genetic disadvantage. So there's certain, I worry about populations of people, genotypes, as well as individual genes that actually affect fat in the book. And so, you know, one population I talk about are the Pima Indians, right? So this this group of uh, American Indians that came down from Bering Strait, they settled in Arizona. Another group went down to Mexico. And uh, the Pima Indians, as, as Westerners started coming through, 
um, the Pima Indians started to eat more like Westerners. Before that time, they were farming, they were hunting, they grew their own vegetables, their own foods. They were kind of a healthy agrarian you know, society and they looked quite normal. But when Westerners came through, Caucasians came through, there was flour, there was bacon, there were you know, lard, things that they weren't normally eating. And what's interesting is that the Pima Indians got really obese, but the Caucasians didn't on the same diet, they didn't. And this has been studied, like, you know, what happened to these, these Pima Indians? And, you know, it was kind of deduced is that they had just ancestry that had gone through famine after famine. So they had evolved a certain genotype that was really good with scarcity. So it was always anticipating a famine because it might happen again. And their bodies were very good at extracting calories, putting it under fat tissue and saving it because that generation might need it again. Now, those who had gone down to Mexico, by the way, the Pima Indians that, that migrated there were still farming and they still looked normal, right? So it was about the food that, that this just genetic type got that, that made it happen. And so, you know, your ancestry, you know, can have a part of it. And I always attributed some of my problem to, to my ancestry too. I'm, I'm Eastern Indian. And of course, in India, there's plenty of famine, right? So I probably came from, you know, a group of people that had to starve quite a bit. And my body's very good at packing away fat. And so you kind of have to know your type. Um, there's certain specific genes too. FTO is a gene I write about. There's a certain variant of the FTO gene. People who have it tend to have much higher appetite, right? They're hungrier more. They want higher um, density energy foods more. Um, there's something called uh, IRS-1, right, A and B. This is interesting because we're talking about insulin. So yeah. a certain variant of this, this ERC gene, um, ERC-1 rather, um, people put away that they're fatter, but healthier, right? So the body's very efficient at putting nutrients away into fat, where another variant of it, they have more floating around, they tend to more heart disease, even though they're thinner, right? So, so again, like our insulin, our, our body's ability to extract our nutrients into, into the proper fat tissue is actually a healthy way to be, right? You just don't want too much of that fat tissue rather, so. Lots of, lots of research with twins, right? Twins will gain in the same areas and the same amount. So, you know, and again, it doesn't mean that you have to be heavy, but you might have to work harder at staying thin. You might have to exercise more. Exercise is a good mitigator of these genetic effects. Even light exercise, like walking, riding a bike, gardening, they've seen that that can overcome some of the results of this, these genes. So fascinating. And I, I love it because a lot of people believe their genes are their destiny when in reality we have the ability via epigenetics to turn on genes and turn them off. And you just gave some brilliant examples. I wrote about in my book about the, um, I forget, I think it's from MIT, but there was a study with these two identical uh, twin mice and they, with the Agudi gene. Do you know that study with the Agudi gene? Yeah, Agudi peptide, right? Yeah, so they, they introduced a toxin to one of the, the mice, and then the other one did not receive the toxin. The one with the toxin, so environmental factor, became obese. The other one didn't, but they had the same genes, right? So speaking of which, besides food that we put in our mouth, what are some other, you talk about this in your book, environmental factors that cause us to store fat? Oh, yeah, this is a really good one. There are differently obesogens in the environment that can cause fatness, and you have to watch out for them. And they're characterized as the four Ps, so plastics like bisphenol, preservatives in food, right, parabens, even in makeup sometimes, and pesticides, right, and then, then produce, right? Some of the produce, some might have some of these pesticides on it, and even things like soy, right? They actually can cause more fatness. And I read about an interesting story in the book about this man who had started gaining weight, and uh, he went to this, this uh, specialist to, to figure out what was wrong, because he was actually very, very active, and he used to do bungee jumping and exercise. And they couldn't figure it out, because his diet looked fine, everything was the same, but he was suddenly gaining weight. And what they finally determined is that he had been microwaving his food in plastics, right? He got married, kind of changed his regimen. They would cook food, hot food, put it in plastic. He would take it to work the next day, microwave it, so he's getting a lot of plastic. And it actually, you know, affected his testosterone levels, and he started to gain weight. And so you, you have to be careful. And again, it's not, you know that you have to be fat, but but start looking for signs. And another thing I, I advise in my course is keep a very active log of what you're doing. It's something I do. So what did you eat? What time did you eat? What was the content of the food? Did you do anything different? Did you take a certain medication that day? You know, and if you start, you'll start to see trends about what makes you lose weight or gain weight. And so this is what this, this man did in the end. He, he kept a log of everything. And they, that's how they finally deduced. It was this new way of cooking, right? And storing food that actually led to this weight gain. Interesting. Yeah. Don't microwave your plastic food. Don't even use the micro. I don't use the microwave at all. I mean, I don't want that radiation. What about the role of toxins like heavy metals? Can that also factor into um, turning on bad genes and storing fat? 
Yeah, I haven't seen research that that has mentioned that. I don't know. Have you seen anything like that? Yeah, I have. I have. There were a few studies that show lead can do it and also mercury. And then Dr. Stephanie Seneth, who also MIT researcher, she showed with her research that in the combination of heavy metals in the body with pesticides and glyphosate, actually they shove the, the pesticides actually shove the metals deeper inside of our tissues. So yeah, there's some interesting research on that. But it's important because we live in the most toxic world than ever, right? We have, you mentioned cleaning supplies, makeup, beauty supplies. So it's important to be aware of this and just start removing it and chipping away. And then the body begins to heal. It's important to really watch what you eat. I mean, one thing is like, what's really in our food? And I'm often asked about why the population is getting fatter. What are, what are my thoughts on it? And there's a lot of reasons. One is the genetics. First of all, we're having a mix of multicultures now together. And if, if right. people come from that thrifty genotype, they're not going to be able to live on the typical Western diet. They'll have to be more careful. But, but another thing is we have so much processed food now. Do you really know what's in your food? I mean, what looks like a, a breasted chicken depending on what you're getting, it could be a bunch of gelatin. It could be a bunch of fillers. It could have a lot of carb and sugar in it because it's just like a, a processed chicken patty. And so knowing what's in your food, right? Watching your food source and preparing it yourself, I just think is really important. And you can be a lot more satisfied, get a lot more nutrients if you're willing to just cook a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's something, you know, that I really, I promote as well. It, it's very easy to cook. And I know it's convenient to just grab something when you're coming home from work and you're really tired You'll feel a lot better if you just take a piece of chicken, throw it even into a toaster oven for 20 minutes, right? Have that with some leafy greens. It's really easy to cook. That way you know exactly what you're getting. No questions about it. No surprise pounds that just come up on the scale after a while when you felt like you were eating healthy. So if you're going to be disciplined and take the effort to be disciplined, do this little extra step and know exactly what's in your food to be disciplined. It's important. If you look at a Subway restaurant, they're being sued right now because people are claiming that their tuna salad sandwich has no tuna inside of it. I mean, these are like Franken foods. It's, isn't that crazy? That's so loud. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tuna, that's crazy. I thought that was the one thing that you could get from there when you knew you were getting actual meat. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not. It turns out it's probably not. I mean, I don't know that they're still going to court for it, so it hasn't been settled, but they are being sued for that. So you mentioned body fat. Having some body fat is important. You know, it protects you. What are the optimal ranges for health, not for fitness or athletic, but for health and longevity for men and women in the ranges for body fat percentage? Yeah, I mean, the things that we're, we're told are in the typical, you know, what is it, 25 to 31% or so for women and then for men, 18 to 24%. But, you know, given the, the sumo wrestle story, the adiponectin story, I think you can actually be a little like 10 pounds above whatever that is for you. It, it's probably not going to kill you as long as it's not in your visceral area. You know, it's this debatable topic too on the obesity paradox where they notice some people are a little bit heavier, actually have a lower mortality rate when it comes to things like heart attacks and diabetes, and it's heavily debated, but but there's there's mixed research there. So I think the idea though of like 7% body fat is really good. I actually don't think that that's good. I mean, that that I feel safer saying that if you get down to very low fat levels, it's not that healthy. And again, it's because your body depends on fat for leptin. It depends on it for adiponectin and estrogen, right? And, and men need estrogen too. We all, we all need that hormone. And so when you start to starve an organ to where there's just trace amounts of it, you get issues. And, you know, our whole body really depends on a healthy level of fat. So uh, we, we've talked about appetite and skeletal muscle, but our brain size is linked to fat, right? So our brains actually get lighter and more porous. We lose volume when we have too low a level of fat. Our bones start to lose mass. Our reproductive system is affected. Uh, and even our immune system is affected, right? People like with anorexia, they don't have as strong of an immune system, right? There, there's certain things that depend on fat, and even wound healing. Our wounds don't heal without adequate fat. It's very interesting. And, and we're just starting to learn more and more about fat and what it's really doing. You know, the, the research dollars weren't really put into fat until there was an obesity epidemic. And NIH and other, other groups started investing into understanding obesity. And we've learned so much in that time about what fat is really doing. And so you don't want to starve it out. It's not something to be gotten rid of at all costs. Fat is not terrible. Your fat, you have to keep it healthy. So just like those campaigns for a healthy heart, healthy lungs, you want to have a healthy layer of fat. And so really, you know, I learned to appreciate fat as much as it vexes me my whole life. You know, I've had a struggle with it. 
you start to realize what your fat is doing for you. It's trying to help you. Like, yes, it's, it's storing extra calories when you eat too much, but it's also producing a whole host, right, of benefits and hormones that your body needs. And so respect your fat, right? Keep, keep it to a healthy level, not too much and not too little. Respect your fat. Love your fat. It'll love you back. If you fight it, it'll fight you back. <laughs> what are the best ways to test, uh, you know, if you have more visceral fat versus subcutaneous fat? What are some methods that you prefer? Yeah, I mean, the best one's a CT scan. It's not cheap. I mean, you know, you have to go to a hospital to get it. So really, the, the easy one is you lie flat on your back, right? And if, if your stomach flattens when you do that, you know, likely it's subcutaneous fat. If, if you keep a paunch when you when you lie down, that's probably underneath your stomach wall, and that is visceral fat. That does, I mean, that works, you know, a lot of times. I think for skinny fat, it doesn't necessarily work. So there are yeah. kind of races that tend to have skinny fat, like um, Asians, right? In Asia, that's seen quite a bit where they still have high levels of visceral fat, even though they look perfectly normal. So, so really, if you really want to know it's a CT scan, you have to go and get an image to see what you've got. I wish there was an easier way to, to find out. Yeah, and people are now going to be lying down on their back testing themselves as they listen to this. There's some other other ways to do it. They're not as accurate as a CT scan, like a like a DEXA and a, a few other ones out there. It'll give you an idea, but yeah, you're right. Go get a CT scan if you really want an accurate measurement. Okay, so we talked about so many great things. First of all, thank you so much. I'm curious, what is your next project? Like, do you have another book in the works? What are you working on right now? Yeah, there's a couple things I'm really interested in. So I mean, one thing is more drilling down into this mind over fat. You know, so there's there's research on what makes people want to change their lives because that's the first thing we do, right? I mean, I wrote this book because I, I wanted to, I, I had a want, I had a desire to accomplish something. But getting to there is a hurdle in itself. And when I look, think about the obesity pandemic and just, just how you know, depleted people are, how out of control they feel they are, it's like they're at a moment where they're wanting to just give up. They just can't take another piece of pressure on them. And so understanding what, what gets someone to want to change their life and then what makes you stay on it once you do. Because you have to be on it for the long haul. Otherwise, we're all just yo-yo dieting all the time. Mm-hmm. So that, that chapter I have, A Mind Over Fat, I'm exploring it more. And there's some research done. There's the National Weight Control Registry where they look at successful dieters, what made them get on it, what makes them stay on it. You know, one thing is that they were shocked. They either got a diagnosis and they were stunned at how unhealthy they had become or they saw a picture of themselves and it was shocking. They were by far heavier, right, than they imagined themselves to be. So there's something about the seriousness, gravity of the situation that'll make people get on it. And then something that makes them stay on it. The people who stay on it for the long haul are successful. They are very regimented. They don't come off their diet almost ever, not on weekends, not on holidays, right? They, they tend to, you know, very limited come off here and there and they get right back on. They exercise an hour a day. You know, they have, they have good discipline and they're, they're careful. They keep food logs. They have a logging tool they use. So, so those are some of the, the things that, that I'm writing about. And then just, just mental tricks, because I have to say during the COVID pandemic, when I was housebound, hey, I got a little lazy too, right? And I, I know everything about fat. It didn't stop me from, from coming off here and there just because it was frustrating. It was depressing, you know, and you're looking for a rise. So how do you keep your mental fortitude going? Because our lives are hard, right? We have kids, we have jobs, we have all kinds of pressures. And I feel like that's what makes people come off more, you know, off their diets and, and want to give up. And I just feel like having ice cream or I want to go to a drive through tonight instead of cooking dinner. I love the idea of you exploring that more mind over fat, talking about more, more about the mindset. I believe reasons come before results. And if you can get clear on your why, you're going to be more successful. It makes me think because I have I have an online program called the Keto Camp Academy where I have my, my step-by-step system for how to do keto flexing and fasting, et cetera. But I also have a section in there called the mental six-pack, right? I always talk about the mindset. So I'm actually curious now that you're sharing that, I could go in and see which members have watched the mental six pack video versus which ones haven't. And then I could kind of get some anecdotal evidence to see for those who did spend time in the mental six pack section, are they more successful for, to those who didn't? So I'm curious to actually do that experiment. And I'd love to know the results when you find out, tell me. I will. There's hundreds of members I've gone through there. So I'll let you know. I have some good data. You know, speaking of stress real quick, cortisol is that a stress hormone, fight or flight. Again, not the bad guy unless it's called all the time. But what effect does living in fear and being stressed out impact you and your ability to lose weight and body fat? Yeah. And it's a really good question because a lot of us are under stress all the time, just with our jobs and our lives, right? We have constant sitting in traffic, right? You have a constant level right. of stress. Especially here in Miami, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so eucornisol is linked to abdominal fat for sure, right? And and so it's linked to certain deposits of fat. Um, stress eating, I think when we have a lot of cortisol, we're almost driven to eat. And in a way, it's our body's way of wanting to dissipate that cortisol like in our blood because it's, it's, it's creating a lot of tension. There's other ways to get rid of it though. And, and you know, when I started to use was exercise actually really helped. And so I was really fortunate. I was working at a place that had a gym on, on the premises and you know, sometime during the day, I would go and do a hit right in the middle of the day. And even if I just exercised for five or six minutes, it came off, it, it, it started dissipating and, and metabolizing. And so there's ways to control it. You know, there's a lot of people who will go through relaxation exercises. That's what they teach, how to be mindful, how to, how to ratchet down your levels of stress. At least for me, I've been less successful with that. I kind of like stress, to be honest with you. It's a little bit of a motivator for me. So I have found other ways to not let it cortisol really accumulate in huge amounts. And I, I think exercise you know, has been a really good solution, at least for me. And that, that's one of the things that you can do. Yeah, it's an outlet for that stress, directing energy to a, a source. So I love it. I love that as an option. For those who are going to take action and get your book, which I highly recommend you do, The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ and What It Means for You. For those who actually read the book, what do you want them to take away from reading your book? Yeah, that there's not one diet that fits all, right? Knowledge is really power. Know yourself, right? Know, know what your body is doing. You know, there's, there's a ways to assess what kind of body type you have, what diet might work best for you, and then most importantly, how to stay on that diet, right? Because even if you do something like, you know, your keto camp, so you've lost weight, now you got to keep it off for the long haul. So you still have to be on some kind of program where you're very careful for the long haul where you can maintain something. So the key takeaway is one, Know your fat to beat your fat, right? Really understand your fat. Respect your fat. It's an organ. It is trying to help you, right? It is not something to be reviled or hated. And secondly, then, once you know your fat, devise a program that's going to work for you for years to come and be patient, right? Uh, this is not an easy thing to do. And one, one big difference between me and everyone else is I'll never say it's easy. I'll, I'll have you lose 20 pounds in 20 days. It's not something I'll, I'll ever say. I'll, I'll speak the truth. The truth is it's not easy. It's a big life change and it's going to take a long time, but you absolutely can do it, right? So, so work on being healthy, work on being um, persistent and all those things that you want will actually come to you once you understand your fat. There you go. Dr. Sylvia Terra said it well. You don't lose weight to get healthy. You get healthy to lose weight. So make sure you go get her book. Where is the best place to get your book? Is there anywhere besides Amazon? What are some more resources you want them to go check you out? Where you want them to check you yeah, out? Yeah, some of the bookstores have it. So Barnes & Noble will have it. Um, you know, Some of the smaller bookstores too will have it. Um, Amazon is good. And then, yeah, you can always reach me online. So I'm at Sylvia Terra PhD on Twitter, Facebook. You can email me as well on Messenger. And so, yeah, it's successful. The course is good too. I think that's another one there's a lot of density in the book almost every sentence is meaningful and i think if someone wants to take this over a longer haul have like a kind of day-to-day -day course that they go down or a path they go down i think i think the course is good for that and it's, it has more implementation techniques as well awesome keto campers go check out dr sylvia's work look at the book go check out her course go check her out on social media i actually tagged you on instagram i was letting my listeners know that I, my instagram followers know that i was going to interview today I want to acknowledge you, Dr. Sylvia, for the incredible amount of research you've put throughout your whole life into this one book and, and what you continue to do to really educate people and empower them so they can understand how fat works, how their body works, how their metabolism works, so they don't fall victim again to a fad approach, to a weight loss approach. We're done with that. We want to make sure we focus on health, cellular health, and you do a great job educating the people on how to do so. I love your book. I love what you're up to, and I want to say thank you for today's conversation. It was outstanding. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. really hope you got so much from that episode with Dr. Sylvia Terra. She's a lot of fun and she has quite the amount of knowledge on fat. Now you understand why when you try to fight fat, it tries to fight back too. So I really hope this episode empowered you. Please text this episode to a friend, post it on social media, somebody you believe could get value from this conversation and go get her book, The Secret Life of Fat. We're going to put links for you in the podcast notes for you to go pick it up today. Give it a good read over the weekend. You're going to love that. And if you want to watch the video version of this interview with Dr. Sylvia Terra, that can be found on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash ketocamp, camp with the K, and you can watch that video today. 
I want to encourage you to leave the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Last thing I want to remind you is that I've been sending out weekly texts to those on my contacts list about ketosis, fasting, inspirational messages, and I'm also giving updates on my contacts to my contacts list. So I'd love for you to shoot me a text message. Yes, this is my real phone number, 786-364-5002. Text me the word fat so I know that you listen to this episode with Dr. Sylvia Terra. So text the word fat. I know you're not calling me fat, by the way, but text the word fat to 786-364-5002. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. You'll hear me on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.